Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network and today's episode focus on literature studies. My name is Yakir Engleder, your host, and today we will speak on the book The Bear, published in 2020. As human beings, we are a part of nature. However, we have a complex relationship with it. As many of you, I dedicate myself to learn how to be nature. But too many times I wonder what are the ways to be there, as it is, without romanticize it, but to learn from it. I wonder about the language of nature, my role as a human being, how to learn its language. When I hear people say, look how peaceful nature is, I'm thinking about the fact that nature includes death and life together, that everything is steady but also changing constantly, that fallen trees become a ground for a new life to appear. I also wonder about the memory of nature. Can nature carry our memories, our touch and being when we are gone? The bear brings us back to Genesis, but on the opposite direction. A father and his daughter are the last two humans in the world. How they will lead their lives what kind of relationship they will have between themselves with and with nature, and what a father should teach his child before he leaves her to be the last human being. What they should do with their time. The bear raises spiritual and theological questions and touches them in a whole new way. Andrew Krivak is a National Book Award finalist and winner of many other prizes. He lives with his wife and three children in the shadow of Mount Monadnoke, which inspired much, much of the landscape in the bear. As we will learn in the interview, his personal life includes deep connection to nature, to spirituality, and to life. Andrew, welcome. Can you please share with us a little bit about your spiritual or religious background? Sure. So I, I grew up in a small town called Dallas, Pennsylvania. It was west of Wilkes-Barre in a place they called the Back Mountain. Um, my mother was, uh, her parents came from Eastern Europe from what was what is now Slovakia and what was then the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And my grandfather actually fought for the Austro-Hungarians in the First World War. Um, and my father was, uh, his, he was one of five children and his father died in the coal mines when my father was three and his sister was my, my grandmother was five months pregnant with his youngest sister. So, uh, so this widow struggled a great deal and they left the, uh, they were, they were raised, um, what's, what's now called Byzantine Catholic. So Eastern Catholics outside of Orthodox, um, outside of Orthodoxy. And so, um, my grand, when my, when my grandfather died, my, my grandmother took them all and moved to Wilkes-Barre where she could get some work. And so uh, it was the uh, the Irish Monsignor at Sacred Heart Church who said, 
let's, you know, I'm taking care of this family. And so my grandmother uh, cleaned schools and all the, all the kids went to Sacred Heart Church. And she was, she was the sort of rock of faith for them. Um, and my mother as well, you know, her, her parents were, um, were Catholics from the old country. So I was raised in this Eastern European Catholicism. And uh, I say that because it was, a, the, the church was really a happy place for me. It was, it was all about ritual and all about um, the, the times of ordinary time, which I realize now isn't mundane. It's, it's the counting down, the ordinal, right? right. And, uh, and the times of feasts and the times of, of penance as well. That um, was all, you know, the liturgical cycle was so much a part of my, my growing up. Um, and then also, too, my parents are both have advanced degrees and they read a lot and they were both college educated, of course. And uh, so my mother, my mother was always throwing books at me, uh, you know, read this, read that. My older brother was throwing science fiction at me and, and uh, my sister was throwing uh, J.D. Salinger at me. So I had to duck <laughs> for all the books, but the, ones I, the ones I picked up, um, they, they all seem to have a religious edge to them in some ways. And and I think long story bearable, when you grow up in that kind of environment for a Catholic boy in the seventies and Catholicism is a good experience for you, a kind of literary experience, if you will, an intellectual journey. Uh, you got to wonder about, you know, what this, what this uh, religious life thing is, you know, is it right for me? So I, I went to St. John's college Annapolis in, um, uh, to study the great books and read philosophy and Greek. And, and, uh, I mean, St. John's college is a, uh, is a religious experience in and of itself. <laughs> so, um, but then afterwards, you know, I worked in a boatyard for a couple of years on the Cape and I, um, I went to, uh, the writing program at Columbia to, st- to, uh, to write poetry. And in New York city, I, I had, um, gotten in touch with some Jesuits with the New York province. And they, uh, I, you know, I had, when I was working on the Cape, I'd gone to Spencer mass to, uh, to visit the uh, Trappists at Spencer to see if maybe I would want to be a monk because of course my mother had me read Thomas Merton, seven story mountain along with St. Augustine's confessions when I was in high school. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but, but when you go uh, to do this journey, how old you are you? St. John. So, right. So let's start in college, junior year of college. I'm, I'm, I go up to the uh, Benedictines in Abiquiu for the sunrise service. Uh, and think, wow, this is what a life, you know? So junior year of college, then um, I'm 22, 23. Uh, when I visit the Trappist at Spencer and I'm on my way to Columbia and they say, look, if you want to be a writer, you should be a writer. Otherwise you're not going to want to be a monk. So I, I moved to New York city and I do have a cousin, my father's brother's son, who is a diocesan priest in Allentown, Pennsylvania, not close to where you are now, who's been a priest for a long time. And, uh, he and I met, at a, we met up at a wedding and we were talking about this. So I had just graduated from college and he said, well, you know, when you get to New York, you should look up the Jesuits and they'll, they, um, they understand spiritual direction. Yeah. So I did. I literally called up the novice master. I'm sorry, the, uh, the vocation director on the phone in New York <laughs> city. And he put me in touch with a, uh, uh, with a priest at Fordham who was teaching theology, but also did spiritual direction. And so one summer I, I worked with some, uh, youth, at risk in the Bronx, in the South Bronx. It was sort of a Fordham University Big Brother program. And um, I kept doing that throughout the year. And I worked in a, what's called a higher achievement program in the South Bronx for, for kids who, who um, the, the Jesuits in the community can recognize have the, the, uh, the capacity to do well, but they're not getting the, a good shot at it. They teach, they do a sort of summer prep course of math, science, 
reading so that they can examine Bronx science and schools like that. And, and, you know, a fair amount get in or they, at least this was 1988. That was, you know, a while back. So I came back my second semester, uh, my second year at Columbia. And I was just thinking, you know, this is the Jesuits really the ones who do it the way I, who lived it the way I thought it ought to be lived. You're still out in the world, but you're, this is, you know, you're all in. And so I applied and I got accepted. And after my, after I did my MFA at Columbia poetry, I, I went up to Syracuse, New York, and I was a Jesuit scholastic. I took vows in 1992 and was a Jesuit scholastic until 98. So eight years in the Jesuits. I entered in 90. I took vows in 92 and I left in 98 in theology, my theology studies after two years as a novice during which you do the spiritual exercises, three years studying philosophy, two years teaching philosophy at Lemoyne College, and then my first year of theology studies. And I, I'll say this, I left uh, because I no longer found the kind of excitement and creativity that I entered with. And I do see it as an arc, I actually start to talk about the story, but I, I always think of storytelling in the way that I understand it from my, my days reading Aristotle, is there's a beginning, a middle and an end. And in the middle of that, you're driven by the struggle. And I see that, I see my time as a Jesuit as a narrative arc that I had to enter, move through and move out of. And there's not a moment I regret. And I also, one of my greatest fears when I was about to leave the Jesuits was, would I regret this? But I just kept at the discernment process, kept at the prayer. And where, where did my heart lead me? Where was my desire? And, um, and since having left in 1998, July 98, I've not for a moment regretted that grace. It was a grace-filled moment to enter the, the, uh, the order, enter religious life. And it's been a grace-filled moments ever since having left. So I carried something with that. Um, and I do, I see it as religious, living a religious life, capital, uh, sorry, small r, small l, right? <laughs> I love it. So I, I mean, in a nutshell, that's it. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, we're in a podcast for the world, but um, mm-hmm. on July 1998, it's exactly the month when I left my ultra-Orthodox upbringing oh. in the yeshiva, oh. and I was um, joined the Israeli society and to the military. So it's fascinating that the same months, two people in different places yeah, are doing yeah. changes. And now we talk. Um, Andrew, I think um, w- when I'm thinking about the image, like the, the, the image that you build in the bear, um, and we will come, we will come soon to that of the, of the, of the girl. Um, because mo- in most of the book, she is a girl, um, a young, um, young teenager. Um, it's fascinating because in so many ways, when I was reading your book, and this is one of the things that make me to, to fall in love with the book, is that I was thinking about her as, as a monk. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, and I choose a monk and not a nun because this was my feeling. And I was thinking about her father, which is in Hebrew, Abba, okay. which is also one of the names, you know, the fathers and mothers of the desert and of like almost as a, student like in many in so many elements she's a student and he's a teacher and in at some point something changed you know um but maybe before all of that what have made you to write this book wow well those i mean what what you just spoke about i think is is uh, really brings a lot of stuff that was um probably bubbling beneath my religious imagination right right to the top Uh, but let me let me start 
with with the origins of of the book and i but i want i do want to talk about the girl as we will as we will yeah good um so i'm i'm we're recording this i'm in jaffrey new hampshire on thorndike pond where we've had a house for about six years or so and i think it goes back to that time um we we bought this place in 2014 and i was uh, finishing up my second novel the signal flame which was about this town this fictional town of darden pennsylvania very similar of course to the pennsylvania i just told you about in the beginning and um i was uh, it, it disappeared like all other works of literary fiction do sometimes <laughs> it's just what you have to accept but i um uh so we came up here a lot and i was really thinking about what did i want to do next I um, had in mind a, a three book series about the the family that I was writing about in Darden. But um, I was also just enjoying my being with my kids there at a, um, a time when they're enjoying what's around us here in nature in this place. And it also took me back to Pennsylvania, growing up in a very rural spot. So you, you see the, the circle starting to tie in. When my kids were really little, I used to tell my boys about a story about my father and me looking for our lost dog, Troy, in the woods. And it was a talking bear around Christmas who gave us the gift of finding him. And they just loved the idea of this talking bear. Even when they, even when they knew animals didn't speak, they're just like, can you tell us the story about the bear? And for me, it was, I was just, I had to get them to go to bed because I wake up early to write. And if they didn't sleep, I didn't sleep. And if I didn't sleep, I don't write. <laughs> End of story. So, uh, uh, so they like this. And I, I started thinking about, um, should I write, should I write a, sit down and write a children's story for them? And in the meantime, they just kept growing. And I was thinking more and more about <clears throat> literary fiction. And uh, my editor from the Sojourn, my first novel, Erica Goldman at Bellevue, she had sent, sent my kids a, um, a copy of Randall Jarrell's The Animal Family, which is about a hunter and a mermaid who raise a family of, of animals, one of which is a bear. And um, I was just fascinated by this genre where, where Jarrell, one of my favorite poets from grad school, is writing this book about two children in a, in a prose that's just so efficient and simple. And it's, it lifts all those expectations and veils you have about the animal kingdom and nature and, and the animal, animal lives. So I wondered about that for the bear. And as I was writing, um, uh, it, it wasn't working out for me as a, as a, a young person's book. And I just kept thinking more about more and more about this idea in literary fiction of the coming of age and the, and the, the quest, not so much the quest narrative. I think that's been used a lot, but the idea of how journey shapes us, uh, we cannot not go on a journey without be, being different ontologically at the end than we are at the beginning. And so, um, I really pushed that book into a place where I, I wanted to think about, was there a way in which <clears throat> without, without it being a, a, a YA novel or something allegorical like C.S. Lewis, the wine, the witch in the wardrobe, where the animal kingdom or nature and humans could somehow um, get past that veil between them. And um, I was out, I, I couldn't, I knew that the girl and the man, that was already a very um, spare in the in nature relationship. I increasingly became really fascinated by this idea of nature as protagonist. The bear. And it has an epigraph from Ralph Waldo Emerson's um, essay on nature from his second series. We did not guess its essence until after a long time. 
The last two were a girl and her father who lived along the old eastern range on the side of a mountain they called the mountain that stands alone. The man had come there with a woman when they were young and built a house out of timber, stones pulled from the ground and mortar they made with a mix of mud and sand. It was set halfway up the mountain slope and looked out onto a lake ringed with birch trees and blueberry bushes that ripened in summer with great bunches of fruit the girl and her father would pick as the two floated along the shore in a canoe. From a small window in front of the house, the glass, a gift the woman's parents had given to her after having received it themselves from the generation before, so precious a thing had it become as the skill for making it was lost and forgotten. The girl could see eagles catching fish in the shallows of an island that rose from the middle of the lake and hear the cries of loons in the morning while her breakfast cooked over a hearth fire. In winter, the snows began not long after the autumn equinox and still visited the mountain months after the spring. Storms lasted for days and weeks at a time, drifts climbing up against the house and bearing paths as deep as some trees grew high. Often the man had to wait for firewood or charge out to his tool shed at the edge of the forest with a rope tied around his waist. But when the wind settled, the skies cleared and the low sun shone again, the man would wrap the young girl warm and tighten a pack, walk out into the stillness of winter and float on snowshoes made of ash limbs and rawhide down to the frozen lake where the two would spend the day fishing for trout and perch to the ice. Snow covered so much of the girl's world from mountaintop to lake that for almost half the year, all she could see when she looked out that window was a landscape at rest beneath a blanket of white. And yet, no matter how long winter lasted, spring followed, its arrival soft and somehow surprising, like the notes of birdsong upon waking or the tap of water slipping in a droplet from a branch to the ground. As the snow melted, black rocks, gray lichen, and brown leaf cover emerged from the once uniform pallet of the forest floor, and the thin silvery outlines of trees began to brighten with leaves of green against the groupings of hemlock and pine. Those were the days when the girl left the house in the morning with her father and studied a new world that pushed up from the dirt of the forest and emerged from the water at the edge of the lake. Days in which she lay on the ground beneath the warm sun and wondered if world and time itself were like the hawk and eagle soaring above her in long arcs, she knew were only part of their flight, for they must have begun and returned to some place as of yet unseen by her, some place as of yet unknown. So that that's the um, that's the setting of the novel, and I, I wanted to capture that, um, that very much that northeastern mountains uh, landscape and. And and what's the word? Just get an image of the man and the girl alone, but living day to day, season by season, year after year, because that's all that's left for them. Which is fascinating because when we think about um, the Garden of Eden, Ghana Eden, we think about Adam and Eve are there alone with, in a very peaceful, in, a, in an interesting relationship, very healthy relationship with nature. Right. And the last two humans are, in a way, living there. Um, but also, it's not that everything is giving to them, but they need to be part of nature and working and in order to find the food, in order to, to deal with the weather. Um, do you see... What are the images that come to you, um, Andrew, when you think about this image of the Garden of Eden and what you try to describe us in the book? I I had I had uh, Genesis in mind um, pretty much the whole way through. I have to say, 
uh, one of the questions people ask is why why didn't you give them names? And I, I gave them I did not give them names because Adam and Eve give give all the things names. That's that's their job to give them names. Right. And so I wanted to. I, and I, so I imagine for the last two, the last two wouldn't need names, and they would they would sort of not so much pull them back or take them away, but just let them let that let that need to name disappear. Um, I, I even wrote a section where the bear asked, you know, asked her what her father called her. And I imagine a dialogue, you know, where she said, he, what do you mean called me? I was always by his side. He never called me. He said, well, I mean, if you were, if he needed you to turn to him, what would he say? And she said, I, I would, I would turn to him no matter what he would say. And the bear's trying to get him to say, you know, what's your name? And she's like, uh, you know, I don't have a name, but I, I realized that that would have been over, you know, it would have overdone it a bit. Um, there, they have. They well, but it's fascinating, Andrew, right? Because I mean, in the Jewish tradition, the idea that Adam and Eve they are giving names is in order to categorize things. Yes, right. This yeah. is why they give names, and also Adam is giving the name to Eve because it's like because she's coming from him, you know, in all the story in Genesis. But here, and then this, and then the scene is deeply connected to shame. And yeah. my feeling, and this is one of the gifts of this book, of the many gifts, is that you give us, in a way, a way how to take off our clothes, how to take off our the things that we need because we feel ashamed of being humans. Mm. And they come back, in my feeling, to be part of nature. Yeah. Yeah, I love this idea of shamelessness and I, I, shamelessness. And I would say that um, the so one of the things I, I was trying to get at with respect to nature was I I do believe that there's a certain hubris among humans that you know we are at the sort of apex of of what we of where we find ourselves and that you know we the things we take we take because we deserve them and I, not everyone thinks that but certainly that's the way we're going and I, what I wanted to do was to um, was to suggest that even storytelling itself has a hubris to it. And that what if the animals, and you know, this idea of the talking bear, I, I, I thought more of, you know, perhaps there's a veil between us and the natural world. And if that veil were to lift, all things would communicate. Or I, I should say, we, we would find, the girl finds, she's the last, the veil lifts for her. She finds that communication and, uh, and care and, and hope even on the on these journeys is something that every every living thing shares and so um uh and uh where did i i wanted to go with this so um so the idea that an animal would talk it's it's more than an idea uh an idea that the animal would communicate with her that she would be open to the the channels that nature presents and that the trees are the historians mm -hmm. of the forest and that perhaps what I hope to strive as a hopeful note at the end of the novel was that um, the history of humanity would never be lost in our story because nature itself, we are a part of nature itself, so much a part of nature itself that nature itself will always remember that story and will never let it, never let it die. So it's nature in a way witness us and in a way it's echo of who we are, right? I mean, exactly. Yeah. And, and we need, and we need to start 
in a way to be open to listen in different way, like to create a new language in a different way. Right, right. Nature's witness. I love that, Yakir. It's such a um, it's such a powerful turn again to think about na- nature as protagonist. Um, yeah. Yes, you know there is Andrew. There is a beautiful Jewish um, um, text from from the Talmud, which is you know it's around um, something at the beginning of um, the first century, the second century, that says that the reason why Adam and Eve were born on the sixth day is God tell them if you know how to behave with nature, so then you're your um, role is to rule in nature in, in, in a healthy way. Sure. You are like, I prepared everything for you. However, if you do not know how to deal with nature, so everything in the world was there before you and there will be after you. After you yeah. and, and, right? yeah. And, yeah. and in a way, your book really gave me the idea of you know, what does it mean to seriously be part of nature in the meaning that we are one of many things, but also we are part of something which is bigger than us. It's like we are not at the center. Mm-hmm. For the first time, I really felt how we can be not less human when we are part of something bigger than us. That's exactly what I was, what I was aiming for. Yes, yes. Thank you. One one thing I wanted to say too is as a novelist that I found um, doing myself doing in this book, and I, I really hope to do more of. I don't see it much. I I found myself making my characters look out. So it's not that I'm against interiority, but I was I was struggling to reread Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment at one point about a year ago, a couple of years ago, and I was I was I was getting so deeply claustrophobic inside of Raskolnikov. And I thought it's it, this interiority is drive, literally driving me crazy. I'm, I'm sure Dostoevsky had that in mind, but but I, I think that a lot of times, and I've noticed it too in other other fiction writers, a lot of times there's a way in which the interiority of a character's thoughts is where the development happens. And I was thinking, what if the development happens while the character is entirely seeing the world? It's not that I'm against interiority; it's just that I want to turn it out. And so I, I think if one is going to write about nature, or at least the beginning of anything that has to that seats itself in nature, has to have that turnout. You know, no more rhetorical questions of the of the mind, no more what will happen here inside the mind. Just look out. Um, and the passage where the man and the girl are in the foundation, the place of the foundation walls, and he finds the the piece of mirror, and he yeah. says, "Your mother had one one like this." And she looks in the mirror, and it's similar to you know, it's it's a better image than it would be from what how she sees herself in the lake. And um, uh, it's a perfect spot for her to think about her mother. What would this woman have been like? How is she like her? And she sticks it in her pack and says, "I'll make arrowheads with this." They have to so much live in the now, right in the now, that there's no. It's, it's not that there's no time for interiority because there's plenty of time. The man certainly has it as he's moving towards his death. And I would hope that a reader sees that as the young woman becomes the old woman. Imagine the kind of interiority, as you say, this monkish old woman must have had living as the last one on, the, on earth. Um, so that's that can be accepted. But as but day to day. In that ordinary life, it's all about looking out and seeing what's in front of you. 
living right now. It's so incredible. I, I must tell you, you know, it's uh, today it's uh, the, the Jewish beginning of the year, mm-hmm. um, the Rosh Hashanah. And so I was thinking that your book is my favorite fiction that I read in the last year. Okay. And it's such a gift. And Andrew, le- so let's try to go even deeper than that. Okay. So I want to go back to the relationship with the father and also with the mother. So we, they don't have names. Mm-hmm. But in a way, they are living in um, as a father and a child, but also as an Abba, as a father in the meaning of a teacher and a student. But then we have also the big teacher, which in a way is a memory that the mother she rep- she present represents. Yeah. Um, and the mother who is not there, but we have everything of the mother by the Abba, by the father. And they go each year to a pilgrim, right? To a yeah. pilgrim journey to the, to the grave of the mother. Right. And I'm thinking, can you share with us? I, I, I had a feeling that you have something at a religious, almost religious teaching there. <laughs> it's like the relationship, I, I would say it even more, in, maybe in a in a in a clearer way, in Western society, I feel many times that we 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 lost the relationship that can happen between a teacher and a student. Mm. You know, yeah. professor at university is not an an um, a spiritual in a way teacher is not like a religious teaching and 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 i understand why because many times the relationship are unhealthy and a lot of you know right. they are there are prices for that yeah. however we lost something and your your book bring it back so how do you look on the relationship between the three of them hmm. uh yeah i th- this is a great question i think that when i re- when i when I knew that these two would be the last two and I knew, um, I, I knew first that the, the mother's story had to be, um, had to be right up front and had to have in it everything that the, that the girl become woman later would also mirror the end of the story. Um, but also that there was, uh, that the father would be responsible for leaving his daughter alone in the world as the last. So this consciousness is there and pressing quite heavily. What would, what would I do as a parent? I think that's, I think I thought about that a lot and, and it may be an interesting um, way in which this book never was a young adult novel. It really had to be literary fiction precisely because of the weight on the, on the man thinking about his child and how he would prepare her. In some ways he can't ever prepare her. She's going to Mm. find things that she's, that he couldn't even imagine. And, um, and who knows after he goes, how long she'll last. Um, but so I, I think so for, for me, um, I was one of seven and I, my father um, was a great man. I have to say he never put an obstacle in my way. We didn't have the same temperament. I was closer, I think to my mother, sort of philosophical temperament, but my father was really this, the outgoing one, um, the one who would hunt, uh, he taught, mm-hmm. taught me how to fish, um, and he was a city kid raised, you know, in the coal mines. But at the World War II, he he was a infantryman in World War II, and so that's I think where he really 
came to have his respect for those those things of the outside world that that would um you know make him be self sufficient. Um, so he hunted and fished, and he, but he also was a great reader too. And um, for some reason, he he was the one who said to me, "Why don't you just go study philosophy?" You know, um, they he he and my mother were the ones who told me to go to St. John's College. They didn't tell me; they suggested, and I thought, "Wow, what a great." What a great thing at a time when parents were saying, you know, study accounting because you'll get a job. Um, and so, mm. but also the other thing I realized with my father was that he let, he let other men be mentors um, for me and for his sons as well. And there's, you know, I think that that comes right out of the Odyssey. Uh, Mentes has to tell Telemachus where his father is because his father's not there and that notion of the mentor. So I had, I know, um, guy named Tom Kravitz, whose daughter and I were great friends in, in high school, or pretty much through all of school. He was, he was, um, I worked for him as a gardener and he was the guy who taught me so much about plants, what you could eat, what you couldn't eat, what, you know, how to make teas, uh, pine needle tea, strawberry leaf tea in the summer, in the spring through the snow for vitamin C. Um, a great man up the, up the street from us, um, Harvey O'Dell, uh, was a fantastic sailor. And we were very about five miles from Harvey's Lake, which was a big natural lake in Pennsylvania. And he came down one Saturday when my dad was and I were working in the garden. We we're just pulling weeds in my dad's garden. And he said, "Hey, I'd, I'd like to take Andrew sailing tomorrow." I, my daughter used to crew for me, and she's gone off to college. And I, I thought, you know, maybe he could he'd be a good crew on this Mobjack series. And so I think my dad was a little bit like that's a little too um, you know yacht. It was the Harvey's Lake Yacht Club. But he asked me if I wanted to do it, and I said, I, "Absolutely, boats! Wow!" And I did, and I and that what that experience with Mr. Odell helped me to do was to think about the, the practical things, how to fix stuff. You know, in sailing, you're always thinking about the next thing to fix, the next thing to yeah. tweak, and and you've got to so hands and head are constantly working together. That was, you know, all that stuff too is in the bear, of course. So, long answer to your question. To think about the ways in which I was very conscious of the man's um, both practical need to prepare the girl, his daughter, but also I, I, I think too, Yakir, I'm, I'm glad you asked this because I do. Um, I, I was aware too of the spiritual need as well, and you know, yes. this is there's there's only one moment where the man who knows he he's he's just gotten bit, he's has. The onset, of, uh, the onset of tetanus. And he wakes up in the morning and he looks out at the sky, the horizon and the ocean. And he says, please not, not yet. She's not ready. Mm. He knows he'll have to die, but he's worried about his daughter. She's not ready yet. But, you know, who is ready? When will she be ready? He has to, he has to play out his own narrative arc. And so too will she. So, um, I don't know if that entirely answers your question, but I, I was to say that these, these, um, what we might've called in religious life, um, um, sort of formational times, you know, I, yeah. you know, eight years in the Jesuits and I certainly had my share of spiritual directors, um, all, all men who would say, look, my job is not to get in, in the way of that relationship between you and God. And so I think the man and the girl, you know, it's, there is some other, I, I, I try to animate nature in such a way that it's not so much an uh, um, animus swirling around, mm -hmm. but that they know they're alone and yet not alone. 
because right. they live so close to the land that they must know this. Yes, yes. And, and, and then also after the death of the father, mm-hmm. the bear became, and, and also some other, like other animals became part of the teachers of the girl. Yeah, teachers. Um, I mean, the bear is, I, I really thought of the bear as, you know, mentor, capital M, you know. So, yes, yeah. yes. Andrew, I want to ask a question. I, I, I have a, a theological question. And, you know, these are the moments where I hope my English is not going to fail me because it's not my first language. Um, God is not appearing in the book. Mm-hmm. However, God is all over or God as we, as I wish God would be, um, is all over. And, you know, your book reminds me, um, there is one book in the Bible that God is not appearing. There is no mentioning of the book of the name of God, which is um, the book of Esther. Right. Um, and God is not there. And uh, the, the rabbis in the old, in, in, again, in the beginning of Judaism, they say that the name Esther is actually come from the verse, Esther, Esther Panay Mikem which means I'm going to hide my face from you because you need to learn to see me as I am as, and not as what you you wish me to be. Yeah. And in a way, God is everywhere. And I wonder, since you, you, you dedicated so many years to, to um, monastic teachings and learning and to more mystical ones, I wonder how it come into the process of writing the book. Hmm. I think that I was so, so aware, obviously, of, of the fact that my, my Catholicism was front and center, and I've written a memoir about my time as a Jesuit. Um, again, I, that, would have, that would have been to me an interior, an interior life of the author, which I was careful of not letting, trying not to let sneak into the bear in an obvious way. Um, the same way that I want the characters in the bear to be looking out at nature. I, I thought, okay, this is, this is my time to look out at the ways in which the last two would understand that wonder, the wonder of what is greater than they are in the world. Um, and I do, I, I, I'll tell you, um, I don't want to ruin this for people who, who will read it, but I, I suppose by the end of it, when I had thought of it, um, uh, there was no way to not so much hide or cover, but just, I just let it be. And the one, the one I've already mentioned was where the man speaks to the horizon and says, she's not ready. Not yet. Who's he speaking to and why, why does he look out? Mm. And the other one is to this character of thorn, which actually comes right, right here from this um, lake that I live on. It was a story that was told to me by a hunter about a native Americans, uh, uh, centuries ago when the first colonists came, uh, he wasn't sure if they were French or English. The, the, the story though lives on of this small tribe of probably Lenape and they were, uh, this one hunter, I forget his name, Sanji, maybe he was out hunting and the colonists massacred the, the group that he came back to find just smoking, uh, we and, and dead, mm-hmm. dead, uh, tribes people. And he, in rage, in rage of revenge, he went out to this island and massacred all the, the, the Europeans, he referred to them, who had killed mm. people. Um, and he did so by changing into um, uh, like a mountain lion, um, 
uh, animals that were known predators and hunters. And in this way, killed in the guise of these of, of three predatory animals, killed all the co- the colonists who wouldn't have understood how powerful nature was, um, especially as a force of revenge. I, so I I didn't I wanted to sort of change that, and so the character of Thorn becomes in the story that the father tells. It becomes both a story that's passed down about what is passed down, but also about the um, <clears throat> the spirit. Well, I'll say it: the spiritual life of the place that there is something that will not die. And he understands it as this character of Thorn who rescued his people from, from the devastation of nature, from the forest fires. Um, and, and so I think that these are ways that I tried to animate this, the sense of wonder. One thing I was, I was reading this um, a couple of weeks ago on a, on an event and for the first time, I read the section where the girl says to the bear, how is it you, <clears throat> how is it you can understand me? And the bear says, really, the question is, how is it that um, we, we've all been, always been able to understand um, other animals in the forest and things like that? It's just that you, you um, others, <clears throat> you humans have lost the ability over the years because you just didn't want to have it. And as he tells her about the way in which the natural world communicates, there was a line that I just could not not write. And her her wonder, her doubt turns to wonder. And she starts to listen to the way in which the bear tells her the trees are historians and lawgivers, and they listen to everything and have long memories. And all animals communicate in some way, because that's that's how that's how the connection lives. Um I love it. I love it. I wonder, I, 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 I'm thinking how we can gain it back. You know, it's like, mm. what needs to happen to us? And um, what are the ways to gain back this ability to communicate with nature? Um, but I also wonder because the girl and the animals, um, after the death of the father, they also eat animals. Yes. Right. So it's like I, I, I was thinking, OK, from the moment that she's communicating with nature in a way, she's going probably not to eat any more animals. However, the animals that she's eating or that the bear um, um, that he brings her, right. they are not animals that she's communicate with. Right. But except though, and, and I, this is the, this is a tricky thing, um, Yakir, too, that I really struggled with was, yes, she has to eat and and. and it's through communication. It's through that. It's through that moment in the woods where she's at the just before the grove, where she understands that, in fact, at a deeper level. Um, not wondering about this myself. At a deeper level, it's the it's the it's need. It's sacrifice that the animals are are willing to sacrifice um, for those who are um, playing their parts. It's the part of the animal, part of the stag who comes to her in the forest to, you know, he's been given that role is to be her food. Um, You know, there was a a book called The Secret Life of Trees maybe several years ago. Um, Fascinating book that I'm certain everybody has read. Like, I'm sure Richard Powers has read this, who wrote the overstory. The the trees take Mm -hmm. care of themselves. There are certain trees that are um, less susceptible to drought, um, that will live longer in drought, and trees that know the drought will kill them. And those trees will die earlier in order to give the moisture in the ground to the trees that will survive. Um, it's, fa- it's just fa- a fascinating notion of community. And I think sacrifice is always, 
always um, part of who we are and what we do. In fact, I think we've we've lost a sense of that these days. It's all about you know what's in it for me. What can I get for myself? There's no sense of sacrificing um, what might be comfortable to us for this for the sake of someone else who might really be suffering. Mm, um, thank you. Um, but so yes, I, but, yes, I, just as a tag on to that, at the end though, yeah. the girl become woman. Um, I do, I do hope readers now we've, we've given all the secrets away too to this book too, haven't we? <laughs> I, she, I, I, you know, you know what I love about the book? It's one of these books that even if you know everything, yeah. you need to experience. It's like art. We, we're talking about, but you need to experience. <laughs> Thank you so much. But she's, you know, by the end she's eating, um, she's a vegetarian for all intents and purposes. You know, she's not eating any more animals. She doesn't need, right. she's existing on, um, on the plants, um, you know, fish, she'll catch some fish in the winter, but she's got enough pro- plant protein in the summer that she can, she can live and she doesn't eat much. Um, so I hope that that comes through as well. She's, she, in fact, she's played her part so well that those to whom those who, those, um, animals that sacrifice themselves to her, um, she did precisely the job that God asked Adam and Eve to do on that sixth day. Right. Yeah. You know, play your part. Don't mess it up, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, 100%. 100%. I, you know, Andrew, I was wondering, because we are jumping from being a girl to become the old woman at yeah. the end, and I was upset on you <laughs> that you didn't tell me what she did all her life. Yes. Because I was learning so much about relationship with nature just by seeing her as a girl. And I said to myself, wow, just this knowledge, I can dedicate the rest of my life to learn. But then, and then she is an older woman and I'm wondering what she has learned all of these years. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, oh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, and I, and I think it's a mysterious. I think it's it's there. It's like this is my role. It's like in a way you you said you are telling me this is me as a reader. I give you some tools. Now go and and find yourself there in nature right. and be said be her be her in a way. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I think you know as a, as a novelist, I'll just speak practically for a second. Pace. I think I think about pace more than anything pace of the story of the arc how will it how will it work out um and i was i knew i was working with a a short novel a novella length and um uh there was a way in which the i realized that i had she had given and she had learned so much up to that point that the only next possible step would be to have her be old because she's lived i think she's just lived Every single day since the moment she comes back and buries her father next to her mother, she's lived every day in the same way that you see her live the last, the, her, her own last day where she lays down and she breathes her last breath and she lays in the dirt until, until the snows come and the snows melt and the Samara seeds from the maples are, are sprouting up and pushing through her leathery skin and her bones because that's exactly who she is. She is, she's of the earth. Yes. And, and since you speak about this moment, Andrew, let's, let's speak a little bit about death. Death is happening there. And one of the things that I took from the book is that you can be 
deeply sad, deeply sad, the sadness of the death of that she experienced that probably the father, when he described, you know, how when his wife died, there is a place of, of um, pain and, um, and grieving, but there is no anger. There is no anger there. Yeah. Um, I, I remember like, I remember when my father passed away, it was my first real, um, experience of the, of the emptiness of the, of the stop, the stop time, you know, and I describe it as a cliff, a sort of vertiginous cliff where you're running and you're running, you're running. And then you just realize you have to stop yourself. Like, and you're almost dangling over the edge of it and you have this vertigo and, um, you could fall. You're in a sense, you're emotionally falling, but you're not. And so I've, I've tried to carry that with me. It's not an anger. I was never, never felt an anger about it. I just felt a, a kind of a, a deep sadness move to wonder. And I think what I wondered the most about was this whole notion of, of, um, of what's next of resurrection on the, on the, um, Catholic side of things on a, um, memory in many ways, what does, what lives on? Uh, I haven't come to the answer to that question, but I think in some ways the bear was my attempt to answer it as best I could. I, I, there's no anger because if one has lived with the, in the, in the, na, in the natural, let me rephrase this. If one has lived as yeah. best one can living in the now and struggling with what is right in front of oneself. Um, and can honestly say that they have um, that that struggle is authentic and mm-hmm. unique and personal. Then, I, then I think that well, I, when I see a person like that die, I I don't feel anger. I feel a great sadness because I miss them a great deal. But I also feel a sort of peace at knowing that um, that that was a that was a story well written. It was a life well lived. And I, I think no matter what happens in the end, who, you know, nobody knows really. That's a cliche, of course. But, but what I really am curious about and what I really think is m- most – the closest thing to certain I can come to is that in the natural world, not just of this earth, but if you start to go out like concentric circles of ripples in the universe, it does not – it's not an elimination of matter, of material and there's and and there's even in the animating force the um uh is it in hebrew nefesh is that yes nefesh yes yeah that sense of 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 dynamism you know where does that go that breath even if it goes off into the air it goes off into space if i think about this entire um universe of all lives i think it is really just a um uh, just a change from one material play, um, state to another. And most fascinating to me will be what, what persists after that. Like um, I don't see, and I don't see any anger in that. So I, I'm, I'm actually this notion of, and it's, it's not a sort of pantheism or just a get down into the dirt, but I, I do imagine a kind of, um, I'm looking out at Mount Monadnock right now as I say this. <laughs> I, mm. I imagine this sort of post-death happiness 
of finally seeing a much larger vision and 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 experiencing and being part of nefesh soul yes. life in a way that we could never be as humans and that we lived our entire lives towards and so now it's like an aha and that and skin and bones doesn't say that right skin and bones just gets gets down into the dirt and trees grow from it but something it's that thing that will say ah yes now now i'm getting a little closer to what it all is that's what i that's what i envision mm-hmm. so fascinating i think that's one of the things that came to my mind when as reading your book is that there is a circle there like because when the trees you know falling down um new life is coming in the forest so when the animals are dying like she's using part of them you know she's using part of the flesh to eat but she's giving the back like the, the, the rest of the animal is going back and becoming part of trees and in a way there is a curiosity right it's like i'm dying but what is going to happen with me now i'm going to become now part of something larger however the choice of your book in my point of view is you challenge the fact that god created human beings in god image because in a way you i think that the fact that or at least you know in in a, the jewish um, christian theology right. the fact that we were created by the image of god according to the bible yeah. made us to be different than the other parts of nature um we think that we have the reason we can we we control nature etc etc and your book bringing us to the other direction it's like how we can become more part of nature even that we are humans and they and 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 these are trees and animals yeah um wow that's i mean that's fascinating i I hadn't, I guess I hadn't realized I was doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Your book brings a lot of theological questions, which are fascinating. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I want, I want to take that maybe to another perspective that, that yeah. I, I would love. Sure. She chooses after when she comes back, Andrew, mm-hmm. she chooses not to read books anymore. Yes. Yeah. And in a way she's saying goodbye and, and it's the same thing. Like in a way she's saying goodbye to something very strong about us as humans. Yeah. And maybe this is the image, what we think that we are different than animals, right? She's saying, I don't need the books anymore because I have a different journey to do or a bigger journey to do. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I don't, I, I don't feel like I'm, well, how should I say this? I don't want to be seen as as sort of knocking down the Judeo uh, Christ, uh, Christian creation story. I mean, in, in many ways, I I just read that over and over again so deeply. But I do I do feel like there's a way in which um, there are elements of the story that perhaps those of us who are who have lived uh, through time and and in the wake of of that creation story have. Um, um, have misread, um, well, not misread it so much as, as haven't gotten as deeply into understanding it as we really can yet. And I think that I was trying to, in that way in which, um, the girl 
becomes the old woman in the mountain and and so much of that hierarchy is is eliminated and yes i i that section where the books just become you know mouse food and then dust I want yeah. that precisely to to mirror the, the the earlier part where the man teaches her to read and to write, and all she really wants to do is listen to him read uh, read to her. He just she just likes the sound of his voice, <laughs> <laughs> and so you know, isn't that really ultimately what the stories, um, what all these books should become is his voice? So, um, and once she has that in nature herself, um, she doesn't she doesn't really need the books, doesn't need the house. She, uh, I, I, I just wanted to force that. I shouldn't say force, but I wanted to follow that path as far into what would she do with respect to um, the path that she is on. Uh, and it wasn't like I wasn't in control of the narrative, but I was really sort of um, seeing where that would take me as it took the girl. And um, that's, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't extract myself from that notion of no she's this path wherein she's becoming lesser she's diminishing while nature is is increasing uh, just it just became what i felt like the novel wanted to say and had to say um at the end there especially i was very conscious too at the end i mentioned dominion in the in the last couple pages i was really kind of conscious of um of Going back to um, Genesis, I, I I think in an earlier conversation, you and I had been talking about Robert Alter. I was really moved by his translation of, of Hebrew scripture and the way in which the, he understands the fact of repetition, the paratactic structure of Hebrew, the ways in which these stories emerged as great narratives, independent of, of you know, a Christian tradition or a Greek tradition. And I, I think I just that final section where she diminishes was my own kind of bow to, to uh, professor Alter <laughs> and to story <laughs> in, in Hebrew scripture where I, I just wanted to bring it close to it in my own way and, and have her, um, you know, have the, the dome of the heavens is that under which she must rightly pass away and in which she is so completely um, exposed and when yet one, was the only thing I tried to get. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the things that you left me at the end of the book is now that there is not any more humanity in the world, in nature, what is the loss that nature happened to nature? Mm. What's it like? Is nature is going to keep telling the stories? Um, and, yeah. uh, or, or stories... Yeah are connected to us in some ways. Yes. And this, I, I mean, I think, I think this goes back to the, um, my comment before about, um, um, nature itself. Like we, we cannot not be forgotten as humans when it's over because nature is so, it, it is so encompassing that it will, it will tell our stories too. And at least to a question that's arisen a couple times. And I, I thought about in the writing of it too, is, if this if this woman is last, and we're talking about storytelling here, who tells the story of the bear? Hmm. Who is the narrator? It is fascinating. Yes, and also the bear, like the young bear who come to take her body. He knows he also got a story, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and maybe in some ways, as you said, the world is scary, like nature 
carried our stories. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming to the New Books Network and for writing The Bear. It was really a pleasure to have you here, Andrew. Well, thank you, Yakir. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine a, a better day in which to have this conversation with you. So thanks so much. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you.